Hello all and welcome to the Pete Stetterner episode of Sigma Sports Presents Matt Stevens Unplugged. Well, what can I say about Pete? Well, he started riding off-road, then rode on the road for a host of World Tour teams, including BMC Racing and Trek Segafredo. Now he's back off-road as a privateer gravel racer or a PGR, and we chat all about that switch. And he's also a craft beer aficionado, and I present him with the difficult task of changing my mind on ale. We've got a steward's inquiry on the Boulder Quiz, folks, which gives us some very high drama indeed. And if you want to know more about magical printers, you've certainly come to the right place. Hello, and welcome. Are you ready? Because it's that time again. Matt Stevens unplugged by Sports. Pete, or Peter Stettiner, rose through the ranks of the pro peloton, racing at world tour level between 2010 and 2019. And whilst at BMC Racing in 2015, he suffered a horrific crash, which left doctors questioning if he'd ever walk again, let alone race a bike. In our chat, we discuss his road to recovery and how his Trek Segafredo team allowed him to switch to gravel racing, which was to become the best professional decision of his life. Now privateer, Pete's primary focus is on racing the US gravel circuit, which has already seen him deliver some memorable results. And we chatted a couple of days before he took part in the Tusha Crusher, which he went on to win in fine solo style. Chapeau! Or, as gravel riders like to say these days, hat! Regular listeners might notice a difference in sound quality, and I should probably point out that my studio microphone is a huge gravel fan and must have gotten stage fright, forcing me to record with my onboard laptop mic, which is why I sound less creamy, caramelly or honey-esque than usual. Check it out. Well, Pete, Stessner, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the podcast, mate. Um, first and foremost, um, what I'd like to do, if you don't mind, for people who are listening in, is just explain to us where you are in the world and also what you can see immediately around you, just to set a nice, rich context for us. Uh, I am in my cabin up in Lake Tahoe, trying to do some uh cramming for the exam of altitude and heat uh, before a race in 48 hours. I am currently looking at a dirty dishwasher, a putrefied sink, and oil splatter all over the range that I am trying to clean up before uh, the bears try and break in, uh, which is a thing up here in Tahoe. The bears are the real locals. Right. So... so <laughs> Yeah, I, I've got I've, that painted a really kind of quite cabin in the woodsy kind of uh, image, almost like a, you know, like the slasher movies from the 1980s, um, <laughs> but maybe but with kind of animals. But uh, so, yeah, um, I did see actually, let's just kind of keep it with the present for the, for the first few moments. You are training for this event, aren't you? And I, and I saw on your Insta that you are spending, you know, a reasonable amount of time in a sauna or something <laughs> like that to, to get yourself acclimatized. Exactly why are you doing that, Pete? Well, by reasonable amount of time, uh, the last two days of training, <laughs> but, um, yeah, you know, it's, uh, I've done the sauna training for a good part of my whole career. You know, that was a, a world tour hack that I learned, uh, way back in the day, in the days of, you know, Garmin, uh, you know, Sharp, Cervelo, um, early world tour years for me. And, uh, this race coming up uh, is one of the big gravel races in the U.S. Uh, it's called Crusher in the Tusher in uh, Utah. And the forecast is for 
um, 100 degrees Fahrenheit, which is what, roughly 40, 45 Celsius. I'm not, I'm not sure on the conversion exactly. Um, jeez, but jeez. Tor- Tore tore down under type heat and um, and it all takes place between uh, two thousand to three thousand meters altitude. So wow, elevation and heat. <laughs> and I kind of yeah. celebrated the Fourth of July here. Had a few beers down down at sea level. And then I kind of did a oh shit moment. I gotta I gotta get up high <laughs> fast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I, I get the sense that uh, just from from your from the text that you put on the post that, yeah, you were kind of cramming. You kind of, I mean, but can you do that without, uh, without a tube? Because there's a, there's a couple of schools of thought, isn't there? I mean, many, mm. many years ago um, in the mid nineties, I was right. Going to be riding the world championships, w- world road championships down in Duitama uh, in Colombia. Yes. And we came to Boulder to train at altitude for a couple of weeks. Then went up to kind of Breckenridge and then higher. And, um, and we did a month. And then some of the European teams just flew out like three days before. So there's two kind of really different kind of kind of schools of thought in relation to altitudes, and of course, factored in is the fact that everybody deals with it differently. But you think there's a definite benefit doing something short term? Well, you know, that's there's so many angles to that question. Um, no, I am very much on the back foot here. <laughs> I <Okay>. I screwed <laughs> it up. <laughs> that said, uh, and you know, with gravel, it's more of a lifestyle. You know, there's family's more important. And I was going to be with my family on the holiday. I was not going to be sitting on some mountaintop before a gravel race. Um, yeah. That said, um, you know, I I live part time in Tahoe. I frequent up here, so instead of needing that one boost uh, and really getting fully acclimated. I come up so often throughout the year and I was born at elevation in Colorado that I feel like I am, it's naturally more normal for me. I don't seem to as suffer as bad, um, before a a big event such as the Leadville 100 next month, which all takes place all over 3000 meters. I will be up, up here for the better part of two weeks. Um, yeah. So, so that happens. Um, and you definitely, you know, the, the way that you're talking about it before, you know, road worlds is, you know, that's getting the, the blood benefit for, you know, just racing or, you know, training up high, but then coming down to sea level. Whereas, you know, it's a, it's a different thing with some of these events that actually take place at altitude. It's more just about not feeling that red line is bad upon actually racing high versus just the physiological benefit. If that makes sense. Sure. 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 <clears throat> I mean, um, Looking back over your, I mean, you're, you're a couple of years in, two and a bit years. I mean, there was a bit of a transition year, wasn't there? Your last year of the World Tour uh, riding for Trek. I know you started to kind of bleed in a little bit of uh, gravel riding, but your career has changed kind of fundamentally. Um, mm. And you, you do. When you look back through, I mean, you've really, um, looking on your personal website, you've got a really interesting career timeline, which sets things in simple but lovely kind of context. And um you know, you're still a, re- a pretty young man, but you've you've never ridden four Giro's, two Tour de France, two two Vuelta's, and, and and numerous other kind of races. But but you seem you know, you've entered into this gravel kind of world now. I mean, uh, you clearly are. Is it fair to say really enjoying this kind of second phase of your career? This has been the best thing, the best move I've ever made in my career. Um, I'm having yeah. way more fun than ever before, and I. No, I would not have the privileged position I am currently in without my world tour career. Um, so I don't get me wrong. I love my time in the world tour. I loved racing the tour de France. Um, you know, that's a dream come true for, 
for any bike rider. Um, however, it's definitely, uh, friends have commented that, you know, Pete, you, you smile more now. You seem like you're having more fun. And yeah. I am, it's just, um, I think I naturally fit this kind of mold more, you know, and, and I started on the off-road too, as a junior. Um, so, uh, it's, it's a little bit of a homecoming type of thing for me too. Yeah. Cause again, looking back again, uh, you think primarily, well, not so much now, but a few years ago, you know, a very well-established, well-respected road rider, but your, your first foray, as far as I can see, um, and the first big race was the 24 hours of Moab in 2001. And that's like a really, I mean, we know a lot of riders, uh, pro riders started off in BMX or mountain biking and stuff when gravel wasn't obviously a thing. But the 24 hours of Moab, that's a really interesting introduction to kind of to bike racing or competitive riding. So how did that come about? You know, I, my dad was a racer. It definitely is in our, our family. Uh, however, they, a lot of people think I was just kind of pushed into it. Um, you know, kind of the, the Axel Merckx type story, but, um, yeah, they never, I mean, knowing my dad growing up, you would have never known that he was a pro. I think all his winner's jerseys were in a duffel bag in the, the closet. <laughs> um, no, no memorabilia really. Um, and I had a soccer, I've played soccer football for you guys. And, uh, I, I had a teammate that was into mountain bike riding and growing up in Boulder, Colorado, which is, you know, hotbed of American cycling. Um, it was pretty easy to find it. So, uh, there was a local YMCA team, just like a junior program kind of after school enrichment. Um, and they were like, we're going to do the 24 hours of Moab, which is a relay race for most categories, not solo. Um, so it was really just five of us, 14 year olds going out to the Moab desert with our parents for a weekend and doing laps. And the parents were, you know, kind of, you know, soccer parenting is the, the, the term here where it's just like full support and they show up in the minivans and the tents. And it was just yeah. bike race camping and fun. But, you know, that was kind of my yeah. first official race on a calendar and something I trained for, you know, we would do like after dinner rides with the lights, trying to get ready for it and stuff in the month before. But, um, yeah, it was it was so much fun. I think I think that's the thing. Every every person that I, that I speak to on on this podcast and outside, just you know, in, in regular life, you know, you talk about their their first foray into bike riding, um, even comp- even kind of non competitively, is just the sense of joy that the cycling brings you, and it, it must be so so rewarding to now, you know, be um, at the kind of vanguard, for want of a kind of better word, really. We know gravel's been around for a little while, but you are kind of you know you've joined like kind of joined at the point where it's essentially kind of a new it's a new facet mm. to our, our, our wonderful sport and it must be quite exciting to be because it's very few kind of privateers that kind of can earn, earn a living at it but it's growing isn't it um but it must be a very very exciting time to you know to learn how to train differently learn about the, the tech side because it, it is a whole new world and you wouldn't you think just riding on gravel is relatively simple but it brings its own set of beautifully complex kind of angles, doesn't it? Um, it was, it was very much luck on my part, just right place, right time. You know, I, there's yeah. been a few of these adventure style races, uh, near my home in Northern California that have been going on for years and they're just grassroots races. Um, and you know, I was just, you know, just lucky to, to see, that this thing had legs and I, I jumped on it early. Um, and it fit. Um, 
that said, you're right. I mean, gravel is its own legitimate discipline now with its own tech, its own media, its own exposure, its own bikes. Um, the races are fast enough and nuanced enough now that you can't just hop into, uh, you know, use use world tour legs and hop into a race anymore. I mean, yeah. I think you saw it unbound recently that yeah. the lead five riders were all gravel privateers. Um, none of the, the world tour guys that were factoring in the, the pre-race discussions actually made that selection. Um, I mean, and then their fitness is some of the best, but you know, there's, there's just uh, nuances that you actually really have to focus on. Um, and I think it just, you know, a little bit of it is, um, a whole new world of logistics around it. I mean, I can tell you, you know, Matteo Jorgensen is a Canyon athlete because he's on Movistar and he showed up for uh, unbound and, I mean, it was just eyes wide open, like what the yeah. hell have I stepped into? I mean, just the, the logistics of the feed zones and all the planning around the food and the rationing and the aid stations, um, all this stuff. It's just, I mean, it's, it's just a different side of the sport. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think I, I was reading, I'm not, I'm, I must, I think we need to kind of point people who, whose interest might be piqued in this conversation. Uh, to the Velo News website where you have like a blog there that I found absolutely fascinating because yeah. I, I kind of rid, ridden a gravel bike a few times and I kind of get it and I quite enjoy it and I'm, I actually want to do some events in the future. I hope the guys at Sigma Sport will listen to you this should. and kind of note something down. Uh, <laughs> but um, but, it's, but it's just, uh, it, it, it is absolutely, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. And, you, and you, how, how, you find, how have you found over the last couple of years because it was only 2019 you were a world tour pro and we're only in, and then we had a very difficult challenging for everybody of course 2020 yes. uh, only 2021 so you must have seen in a relatively short period of time how have you kind of coped with the physiological adaptations with the demands of of a of a of a, of a kind of new sport really within cycling yeah you know it's um 2019 basically i had pitched trek uh at the time i was on trek segafredo to let me do a few of these, uh, quote unquote, alternative races, um, and Trek marketing thought it made sense. So, um, you know, I went to the Belgian waffle ride, which, uh, as of this recording, uh, my title defense is coming up in about, uh, a week and a half. Um, and then unbound 200 and the Leadville 100. Um, and it was, you know, I definitely, it was not as much of an extreme step for me just because, as I said, I've been doing these uh, smaller adventure races such as the Grasshopper series, which now does get coverage because it's early gravel, you know, it's it's OG gravel. But, um, yeah, you know, I so I've done these type of adventure races um, just locally before. And I mean, my friends would just they're like, Pete, you got to do Belgian waffle ride. It's like a grasshopper on steroids. Right. Um, <laughs> and. And so it was not as much of a, a technical sidestep. I mean, I've ridden skinny tires off road plenty of times growing yeah. up. Um, that said, um, the way that gravel's evolving, um, and they call it gravel grinding, right? Like that's the kind of the original term. It's just yeah, ultra long distances grinding out there for the better part of anywhere from six to twenty hours, uh, so much longer than your typical road race. Um, I, I've realized that it's less about kind of that road racing, hiding in the Peloton, high power explosivity, uh, and more about kind of that all day 
turbo diesel, right? You know, so I would, yeah, yeah I've actually yeah. said in, in a few other interviews that, and it, it's very true that um, looking at, at a power file and, and the way that a race kind of rolls out, you need to, for a roadie, you need to imagine making the breakaway in a big grand tour stage and then imagine that that breakaway miraculously sticks to the line and you will have to attack out of that to try to win. But it's, you keep on the power all day. There's not this like rolling around easy for a few hours type of thing. Um, so I've gotten yeah. a lot better at diesel. If I were to ever return to the world tour, which there's no plan on that, but you know, I would actually be a much better breakaway rider. I feel than a climbing domestic. Right. Right. Um, okay. Do you, do you think, I mean, looking at uh, the way that the, the sport of gravel is, is evolving, do you think there's going to be a world championships anytime soon? And um, oh yeah, I mean, yeah. imagine that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I, I think it will. I think it's only a matter of time, personally. But there's a few things to sort out, isn't there? But I, I think that's that seems to be the direction it's heading. You know, just seeing the media and the money behind it, and it being its own discipline. Um, the UCI is coming in. I mean, everybody knows it. They can't not, right? I mean, it's just too big, and they they need to get their foot in the door. That said. It's it's a difficult conversation in that, you know, if you know, I, I hope you can make it to one of these events soon and come to a big one and feel it firsthand because, you know, you can read all of us saying it. But it's very true in that these events are a lifestyle and they're community yeah. oriented and the racing is almost secondary. Um, you know, we race very, very seriously in the front. And when the flag drops, you know, you got a number on your back. It's a race and tactics and all that. But it's not it's not just about the win, you know. And and so if the UCI were to come in and just be like, here's a gravel world. I mean, yeah, I, I have sponsors that care. I care. I mean, I come from a competitive road background, like, you know, a world champ would be right. Wearing the rainbows would be a dream come true. That said, like I can't say that I would actually put it on a higher pedestal than Unbound or the Belgian Waffle Ride. Um, and I think they would definitely have to think about just making another gravel event with, you know, by the way, the top step of the podium gets a fancy jersey. Like, but don't yeah. make it more than that. Don't start making categoried starts and and all this other stuff. I mean, I I don't know. Maybe they've they've been to some events on the back end, but I haven't even, you know, seen anyone from, from the UCI at some of these big events. Um, yet, you know, I, I hope they, if their heart's in the right place and then they can actually replicate it power to them. But, uh, yeah. you know, a lot of people are very, they're very protective because, you know, yeah, they, yeah. these events are, it's gravels big because these events are selling out left and right. You know, it's lottery systems to get in. So these organizers, they're doing it just fine. You're, you know, they're like, you know, thank you very much. Like we're just, we're just fine without you. So, um, yeah, I hope it's not, you know, it's the UCI ruining gravel is a very sticky subject. Oh no, definitely. I, I think the, the parallel that just springs to mind immediately. Actually, I was on a Zoom uh, call the other day um, with the the comment. I'm going to be commentating on Olympic Games uh, road race, awesome. and, um, and it was a, it was a big conversation. It's yeah, I'm really excited. But it's a big conversation about the other sports, the new sports, and we had these skateboard commentators saying, "How do we talk about the kind of um, the fact that the, the complete opposite 
of skating is 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 kind of hierarchy and structure and organization it's just street mm-hmm. sports so that it's and i and i get and it was a really interesting conversation these guys are pumped about doing the commentary they're like you know there's going to be half of the skateboard world who are not even going to think this is legit right and another half that can think it's great and and i get the sense because of the kind of punk rock ideology and the and the kind of underground feel of and of, of skating um and previously it's kind of snowboarding to a lesser degree but there's almost that kind of sense of things, isn't there? There's you. It's cool, isn't it? it? And you don't want it to become uncool. It's got this. It's grown organically. It has a its own unique feel. And and I, and I guess that people want to hold hold on to that really tightly, don't they? Yeah, I think so. Um, it's you know, there's there's no right answer, and I think yeah, yeah. I I mean, I have no personal core. Like I'm friends with a lot of folks at USA cycling. I came up through the USA cycling pipeline. There are good folks behind the scenes there. Uh, people I consider friends. Um, and I know they have taking a, a serious interest in this. Um, and I think they are trying to do a very good job of kind of being that, that middleman between, you know, the current gravel scene in the U S unsanctioned and the UCI just trying to come in and create, um, and it very well might just be two different things, you know, uh, it might just be, yeah. there's like UCI gravel racing. Um, and then there's just the American gravel scene as we know. It. And that's kind of how, you know, mountain yeah. biking in the U S is, is, you know, there was a moment I want to say about a decade ago where, um, a lot of the American mountain bike races didn't really fit the, the current cross country mountain bike format. Um, and they were unsanctioned and the UCI kind of tried to stronghold strong arm, some riders being like you can't do UCI races if you're doing unsanctioned races. Like we won't allow your license. Um, and sure. a lot of the American mountain bikers were like, screw it. I'm going to do the U S stuff. So, you know, I, I hope it doesn't come to that. I think, um, you know, the UCI and USA cycling have, uh, learned a lot of lessons from how mountain bike has evolved because, you know, this gravel movement is drawing a lot of parallels from mountain bike in the nineties yeah. as well. So, um, yeah. I, I hope it's done right. Um, and that said, you know, I'm still a racer. Like I'll probably show up to a gravel worlds. I will, but you know, I'm, I'm again, like, I don't know if it's going to be bigger than, I mean, Belgian waffle ride next weekend is 4,500 people. Wow. That's amazing. Isn't it? The way that sort of, um, come on, that is, that is astonishing. Um, hold on a minute. I can hear something in the background. A bit weird. Uh, just get, oh, random question alert. Random question alert. It is time for a random question. Well, uh, P- uh, Pete, yep, yeah, sorry about that, mate. We have this thing that the, my, my sponsors at Sigma insisted that they installed this kind of lo-fi 1980s kind of ex-Russian computer in my loft uh, that occasionally kicks off and generates a random question for my guests. So, um, so it's not kind of fact. You're in it. Yeah, it's got it's got <laughs> like a fax-based system. I've just walked across the room, torn off a bit of a bit of paper with those holes in the side that you used to get at school back in the day, and and this is the question. I've never seen this question before, and I'm going to put it to you now. <laughs> Here it is. Okay, if you had a magic printer that could print absolutely anything, mm-hmm. what would you print, Pete, and why? A magic printer. Ooh, wow. Magic what would you print, printer. and why? Well, yeah. You know, first of all, while I ruminate on this, I do want to say that uh, you're you're uh, alluding to a fax machine is amazing because I'm guessing half the folks don't know what that is. I, uh, I was yeah, part of a there is video that, yeah. project during uh, COVID times where we put a telephone booth on top of a mountaintop um, and it kind of served as, you know, 
God in the universe calling me. <laughs> but like right. we were kind of like, wait a second, like when have you ever seen like a phone booth in the wild? Like, I mean, half the people aren't going to get this. Like, what is a phone booth? And I kind of feel like fax machine yeah. is like, how many of your listeners have actually seen a fax machine in the wild? Um, yeah. I, I yeah. like the idea of just like cruising through the forest and then just this phone booth and like, what the hell? Yeah. Um, and then you pick I up. I went into it's a ringing. phone booth. And, you, yeah. would, you would pick up. <laughs> yeah. You would, but you, that would be, that'd be a start of a great kind of movie, wouldn't it? Uh, well, we, we did clues, the movie. But you don't if, know if, who this voice is coming from. <laughs> if your followers go to letsprivateer.com, <laughs> there's a video about that. It's about four minutes long and it's amazing. I, and we put a phone booth on a mountaintop. <laughs> brilliant. Well, post pod, I'm gonna. Uh-huh. I'm honestly gonna check that out, and I will message you my, my little cheeky review. But uh, um, back to back. That sounds amazing. But oh. back to the question. <laughs> I love it when right. it goes tangential. Uh, what would you print, Pete? Oh man, it's a tough. It's a tough I one, didn't even it? ruminate on it during our discussion. Um, no. Currently, like just <laughs> off the off the cuff, and it's boring. It's not um, world changing or anything. But I've got this really cool idea of like a. Um, a uh a mount for your gps device um oh yeah and and i actually have a friend that does carbon molding and i've kind of brought the idea to him um and i want to see it happen but you know a lot of people and and now especially that the uci outlawed it i was thinking about this a year ago but you know the whole puppy paw on the forearm thing yeah um that's now illegal because it is kind of sketchy if your arms are sweaty and you're, you know, you're resting your, your forearms on carbon. Um, there's like, I, w- I kind of want like, imagine a, um, a GPS mount that sticks out from the front of your handlebars or your stem. And I want like basically two like yep. fist sized dowels coming off at an angle from it that just act as handholds. Oh, yeah. um, so I want to basically place my forearms on the handlebars and be able to basically grab that computer mount. And it's not like fully weight bearing. You're actually, you know, you're still yeah. putting your weight on your handlebars, but you know, you can actually kind of maneuver and hold on to something a little bit. Um, I kind of want to call it the breakaway mount. And, you know, the UCI isn't in gravel yet, so there's no rules. So technically it's legal, but I kind of want to create that. So if any so- of the listeners have a... Um, a CNC machine, hit me up. Yeah. Um, or, I mean, although we, that question was quite fantastical, really, with things called 3D printers, which are in existence, um, I don't think that's too far away. I, I'd, I mean, a, a 90s version, if, if I'd have been asked this question in the 90s, and I, all I had to do was to resort to my shed to find bits, it would be a pair of spinaches with um <laughs> yep. like an ipad but there wouldn't be an ipad back then with texas instruments speak and spell sillotaped and like gaffer taped to the spinaches <laughs> as right, a rudimentary man. kind of guide i'm gonna uh, send you know a, what I mean? uh, something like- a pitch to um <laughs> texas instruments as a uh, non-endemic sponsor after this that's where the money is oh god I've got- definitely mate definitely but uh yeah it'd end up in something like stranger things wouldn't it um or something <laughs> like that right um beer Ale. Yes. Um, now we're aside from, from, from riding gravel and, and being a previous World Tour pro, uh, you are massively into ale. Now, this is going to be, I don't know, a bit of a hot take. Mm-hmm. I don't really like ale, okay? I like Pilsner. I like a lighter, crisp kind of thing. But my question to you is, sell me, why should I like ale? Because I really want to like it, but I, I can't because I, I, take, I just can't. 
explain to me what's so great about craft beer. I know you could probably wax lyrical, so please, because right. I want to be converted. You know, it is. Have you, well, first of all, have you had it in the U.S. yet? Like a actual, like well-known IPA. Uh, I did at the uh, the Denver Beer Festival in 1995. Me and Jeremy okay. Hunt got very drunk oh on the training gosh. camp, so I can't remember much about it. <laughs> um, well, the the Great American Beer Festival is still a centerpiece of the craft beer movement. Uh, however, 95 was a long time ago, and IPA was in its infancy. It now, beer is being treated like wine. I mean, a four-pack of pints runs for about... 15 to 18 dollars us um it's like the price of a bottle of wine um and i mean there's a whole thing around you know tasting notes and flavors um every beer is actually treated differently um it's a it's a whole new world there um and it's it's funny there's actually a real famous brewery a world famous brewery about a mile from my house um called russian river they have a beer called uh pliny the elder that was kind of like it's still one of the like the most iconic cult beers in the U.S. Um, and the standard okay. for and a double IPA, eight and a half percent, knocks your block off, but done well. And um, after the tour of California every year, I would kind of bring like a big old growler. My wife would bring it to the final stage, and you know I'd pour it for for all my Euro teammates, and they they all sampled it, and they they were interested, and they could not fault it, but then they'd be like, all right, now, you know, where's my Belgian ale or where, where's my, my Heineken? Um, it's, yeah. it's an acquired taste. And, um, you know, the more time you spend here, you know, you go to a local craft brewery now, which are, they're everywhere and you get a flight and you start comparing, you will find one you like. Um, it's interesting. Right. It's like wine. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm on your, again, uh, your, your rather very, your rather great website and your, your Pete's secret stash, which is uh, a play on mustache. Of course, you're a very famous mustachioed professional cyclist, as we know, have been for a while. Um, and it's, well, firstly, yeah, f- firstly, how did you get into it? And it must've been quite rewarding to finally have actually, uh, made a nail, um, but yeah. with your kind of face on it a bit but but it was kind of cool because you know when a hobby term like a passion or a hobby turns into something although it's kind of there's clearly a business there for you you clearly love it don't you yeah no i i mean it's it's a passion that's my second favorite passion after the bike is craft beer and when i'm traveling around i want to stop at the local brewery and get a pint or a, a small flight and and sample what what they've got uh and the nice thing about gravel racing is they pretty much all have a beer sponsor there's always post dried beers um yeah. Yeah. It's uh it's almost like one of the main rules in gravel is don't say no to the post dried beer. That's not cool. <laughs> but yeah, uh, you know, yeah. the the secret stash. So that's a really cool story in that, you know, I created this um Grand Fondo during my road years with Trek uh out of Lake Tahoe, um, that is now transpired into what is the pay dirt and a full on gravel race that that I have um as well. However, um, you know, I basically through a friend of a friend, I met this brewery that, uh, in the town that we go through and they were just starting out. And I said, Hey, you know, like we need a beer sponsor, post dried beers at our grand fondo. And lo and behold, the guy used to race mountain bikes in college. He was stoked. So he was like, okay, you know let's make a beer. Um, yeah. And, Brilliant. and so basically we, you know, that was year one, 2017, we, uh, made this this he we sat down and it was just like okay tell me names of beers that you like like give me just like you know like ideas and then 
you know, I said, oh, you know, I like this beer from this company and this beer from this company. And I like these tastes, like I like more piney, earthy, you know, notes instead of like fruit bombs. Um, and, okay. and uh, he created a beer and we called it uh, Prospect and Pete's Pale Ale. And it was a hoppy pale ale uh, done really well. And it wasn't, it was only like five and a half percent. So it wouldn't destroy you after a, you know, hundred mile Grand Fondo. <laughs> um, yep. And it was just a little before, it's still one of my favorite beers to this day, but it was a little before it's time just because, you know, in the US, it's kind of marketing lingo is, you know, if it doesn't say IPA, sure. people are kind of like, what the hell? Where's my IPA? So um, there's now a new style in the US called um, hazy IPA or New England style IPA. And it's this unfiltered, okay. uh, a lot more mellow. It's not as much of that bitterness that actually turns a lot of um, newbies and also uh, European drinkers such as yourself off. It's more uh, malty, smoother, but they're still like, it's it's brewers experimenting with the the nuances of, of hop tones. And um, it's unfiltered. Right. It's like drinking like a loaf of bread. They are heavy, but <laughs> impressive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, this is the new hot style in the US. Um, not new anymore, even. And, you know, so in 2018, we were like, you know what, let's revamp it. And so we basically we hazed it up. Um, and we created the secret stash off of the backbone of Prospect and Pete's Pale Ale. Um, we upped the alcohol, we hazed it out. Um, and a lot of the, the marketing and the uh, kind of like a a concerted effort by brewers nationwide is a lot of these hazies kind of have this like psychedelic starry space dust type of artwork. Right. Um, yeah. And, and so we basically got my face, slapped it on a can, characterized it or caricatured it. And like, we have like my mustache swirling out into like space dust in the ethers. Um, yeah, and kind of funny. unfortunately it kind of looks like I'm just like blowing a big old puff of smoke from a blunt, but I guess that fits beer too. <laughs> so a lot of people probably yeah. think I'm a stoner now, but you know, that's, it sells. <laughs> um, no, it's, and, it, it's, uh, I, I'm, I'm liking it. Yeah. Uh, but it drinks real well. It's only available around the time of my event. Um, I hope they bring it back this year again, but, uh, that brewery does amazing stuff, but it was amazing. I mean, I had my face on a beer can that was sold nation and in, in worldwide some. So, um, it was like it was a life goal unchecked, and and a real funny story is actually, um, you know that that first year with Prospect and Pete's Pale Ale, you know I was doing this Grand Fondo in my event in the U.S. and I mean I I had a beer after it my namesake beer right so of course if I'd see it in a store you know on the Instagram I would take a picture and be like guys like I found the beer at this store like go grab it go check it out you know and I just take a picture of it and then I uh, I went back to Europe. And I actually got um, top 10. I think I was ninth or 10th on the mountaintop finish in Milano Torino, which is a very big Italian fall classic um, on a, an uphill finish. And my teammates afterwards were like, how the hell did you do that, Pete? Like, you've just been in the U.S. partying and drinking beer. <laughs> and I was like, you guys, it's like there's this disconnect. It was like, you know, I just just because I take a picture of the beer does not mean I'm, I'm always drinking it. But uh, wasted. Yeah, <laughs> that was pretty funny. I, I I know that climb 
I was at the Giro the, uh, earlier in the year, and uh, we started in uh, Turin, as, as you know. I'm mm-hmm. sure you do follow the sport a bit. And I, I rode up that climb uh, on my Brompton. That's a oh, great yeah. climb, isn't it? Um, so I didn't really think you, you got your top 10 in that. That's a, yeah, that's a, a horrible climb. Beautiful, but on a little tiny bike, folding bike, it, it, was, a, it was a challenge. But um, <laughs> right, okay. It was. Oh, Talking, my God. <laughs> it, 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 it was fun. I tell you, I, I've always been fascinated by the by alcohol and uh how and how it enhances performance or doesn't mm-hmm. you know that kind of sensation again I, I must little disclaimer here um please anybody listening please don't go out and get drunk and ride your bike on an open road but what don't do that we have maybe all done yeah is is maybe had a, a little cheeky snifter uh yeah. and maybe in the dark and ridden and you get this kind of a kind of weird sense of speed that drinking kind of gives you so i would like to i'm just <laughs> going to ask you this question how far Pete, do you think you could go uh, on, on a gravel grind with a backup crew, you know, medical supervision, and maybe like an elaborate kind of system where if you did fall over, there was a mattress to protect you from the gravel, so you weren't going to get hurt. But mm-hmm. um, you were, you were grab, you were kind of grinding at kind of like around 250 watts, 260 watts, something kind of sustainable but uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. But every 45 minutes, you had to have a canny Rome beer. How far do you think you could go? How drunk do you think you Ooh. would? Yes, imagine that as a kind of videoed experiment. It would, and I guess we're gravel grinding, so we're probably in like the hot, arid desert somewhere, right? In the American Uh, South, it's going to be warm. It's going to be warm, and that's your only way. Again, there's there's medical support. Nobody's going to get hurt, but we're we're gonna we're gonna see how drunk you can get before you kind of topple over. How far do you think you can go? Oh my gosh! Well, you know, with with the secret stash, (laughs) that thing is six point seven percent. So. I would make it a few of them. Um, you know, at over 45 minutes, you know, you burn the equivalent of the beer, but you also start to dehydrate a little bit. Um, yeah. There is a yeah. lot of carbs in the hazies, though. I mean, those things are probably, yeah. you know, a good 350 calories per pint. Um, they are thick, like wow. I said. Um, okay. Yeah. Beer gut is a, it's a real thing that I got to fight in the gravel world now. Um, you know, so <laughs> if I could... I would probably take what we call more of like a breakfast beer, you know, such as a lighter, you know, 4% okay. lager, um, you know, something like that. Um, I think you could go a ways on it. I mean, beer is yeah, in moderation. It's a recovery drink. You know, you have one beer post ride. It's, 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 it's isotonic as well, isn't it? Oh yeah. Carbohydrate. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, your muscles feel good. You relax a little bit. So I think you could fuel off of a, a beer an hour for, of course, using other things for quite a long time, but um, I, you know what? I'm going to pitch this to uh, to a sponsor and kind of try to try to set a Guinness Book of World Records. This is going to be a good one. Uh, I, I just I just think it's the it's the content that we all want to see, uh, <laughs> and I and even and even to take it a step further, or maybe not a step further. The first test would be, you know, in a lab. And so it's safe. You're on Zwift or something, or just on a static trainer, and you, and every every kind of maybe every twenty minutes. You Are you familiar with the beer mile just, in running? Uh, oh, is it laps of a running track, and every exactly. lap you have to neck a beer? <laughs> yeah, but something like that, but in a lab or out on the road, but it was safe because this is just a fun thing. We need again, a cycling we, equivalent I, of that. Yeah, we, we do, and um, nobody. I, I think because it's kind of it's dodgy territory, um, but 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 I, I like to push the envelope sometimes, and, and I think it'd be a great bit of content. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, anyway, uh, moving away from beer, um, <laughs> what we're going to do now is uh, I spent a lot of time earlier today in my preparation for this uh, for this chat, um, looking up facts about Boulder. 
So I think mm. it's time, Pete, <laughs> for the Boulder Quiz. All right, let's bang on Boulder. The Boulder Quiz. <laughs> the Boulder Quiz. Now it's time for the Boulder Quiz. Oh this is God. a quiz about the city of Boulder in Colorado. It is not a quiz about giant rocks. <laughs> you spent way too much time on this. <laughs> Niall, Niall, our producer, is an absolute... I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I guess there was... Uh, some people could listen to that and think, yeah, is that a quiz about uh, boulders, not about the city in Colorado? So that little <laughs> explanation at the end, perhaps. Now, right. I'm conscious that you only grew up in Boulder and you don't live there anymore. Yes. Uh, but I think... You know, but I do have four questions, uh, very, very deftly cr- uh, curated for mm-hmm. your delectation, mate. But um, again, this isn't about showing people off about their lack of knowledge. Um, <laughs> last week, we had poor old Nathan Haas didn't get any questions right about his hometown of Canberra, and he was distraught. Oh. But okay. it's multiple choice. Some there's there's four possible answers. So, mm-hmm. you, if, worst case scenario, Pete, you, you just guess. All right. All right. So. Here we are. So question number one in the Boulder quiz, all right? In 2005, the city of Boulder experimented in using a particular animal for weed control in environmentally sensitive areas. But what animal was it? Okay, so 2005, city of Boulder, they had a problem with weeds. Uh, This is true. Uh, They experimented using a particular animal um, to basically control the weeds. Well, so which animal was it? It is a thing that happens many places now, but I would wager, I guess, on goats. However, any true boulderite knows that it's probably the fucking prairie dogs because boulder treats them like royal animals and they let them spread everywhere. But my, my well, official a, uh, answer I, is goats. <laughs> I cannot believe you didn't even give me a, an, an opportunity to give you the four choices. But yes, the answer <laughs> is goats. It's a double point. <laughs> For Pete Stettner, I mean, he's straight out of the block. He's in the early break. They've got a four-minute lead on the peloton. Um, Yeah, I I was going to say prairie dogs, A, B, goats, C, Colorado chipmunk, and D, the mule deer. But goats, that gets gets you two points. All right. Surging into lead. Wow. Good start there, Pete. Good start. Um, Okay, question number two. It's a literary question, actually, this one. Okay. okay, author Stephen King, of course, absolute legend that he is, set his book, The Stand, in Boulder, which I didn't know. I did read The Stand many years ago, uh, which incidentally uh, was about a flu epidemic. Slightly prescient. There you go. Mm. Um, but what book did Stephen King write whilst living in Boulder for just under a year, starting in the autumn of 1974? So Stephen King spent just under a year in Boulder in, uh, from, from the autumn of 1974. Which book did he write? Was it A, Firestarter, B, Salem's Lot, C, The Shining, or C, Cujo, or D, Cujo, sorry? Um, well, I, what was the name of the first one? Firestarter. Firestarter. You know, first of all, I was born in 87, so 74 is well before my time. Um it- this is a hard one. I know it's, I don't know Cujo. I've never read Stephen King novels, unfortunately. Okay. Um, no, no, no. However, a fun fact is uh, the, uh, sorry, what was the answer C? C was The Shining. The Shining. So that's a Stanley, wait, is it a King Kubrick. novel, but a Kubrick movie? Yes. Shoot. Yep. 
I know the movie well, yeah. and that takes place up in Estes Park above Boulder, which we ride through all the time on our bikes. Um, there's a famous motel yeah. there, the Stanley Motel, The Shining. Uh, Jack Nicholson, know it well. That's a bit of local legend. Um, is that a King novel? If so, that would be inspiration, or is, is Kubrick an author as well? No, so St- Stephen King wrote it, uh, and Kubrick adapted it yeah. uh, for the screen. Okay, well then I'm. That's gonna. I guess that'll be my guess. That is correct, Amundo. Oh. <laughs> I mean, right I mean, I love. Yeah. So well done. So Firestarter actually wrote in 1981. Salem's Lot, uh, like 79. Uh, Cujo again, early 80s. That was 1982. Hmm. Uh, but yeah, it was The Shining. So you are steaming ahead at the moment. So you've actually weirdly got three marks out of two questions because of your fast start. <laughs> okay. Right. Question number three of the Boulder Quiz. Pretty straightforward. What is Boulder's in feet official elevation? I'm going to give you four choices here. Is it 5,328 feet, 5,428 feet, 5,528 feet, or 5,628 feet? 5,628. Oh, it's 5,328, mate. Well, that depends where. There's a lot of hills in Boulder. I'm pretty sure I lived there. At I was going to think <laughs> technicality. That's a, do you know what? I think what we'll do, we'll, uh, after this podcast, we, you've got 24 hours to appeal these questions, Pete. Um, so, <laughs> it, but in writing, uh, in, in fax form. So we'll to. double check that. But that is the official. But again, where's the, it's like, you know, Drop I'm going to go to the center of London. At my house. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So what I will do in my little mole skin where my questions are written down, I'm going to put appeal pending. <laughs> uh, in that one yeah <laughs> you can okay, mate, okay, yeah okay. take away my free point Fair, right okay final question you'll be relieved <laughs> to know on the boulder quiz uh is is this one and it's taken a whole page um here we go right question number four the boulder cruiser ride is a weekly bike ride in boulder that was eventually well. outlawed Stop by it. the police yeah it was eventually outlawed by the police due to generally unruly behavior mm. forward slash drug taking mm-hmm. uh, so it was out, outlawed as a public event but then it was it became like an unofficial event but in may of 2013 over 400 riders attended one cruiser ride to honor what and these are the choices okay so 400 riders may 2013 in honor of this particular thing was it A, to honour Giant Dave, a black bear who died at the age of 45 and was a popular animal uh, to locals, basically? So was it to honour Giant Dave who died? Was it B, to honour Big Boy, a local elk who was shot and killed by a Boulder police officer? Was it C, um, was it Ken, the black leopard who was hit by an ambulance on Maple Avenue? Uh, or was it D, Ellsworthy, the one-legged chipmunk who passed away in his sleep at the Greenwood Wildlife Rehabilitation Centre? <laughs> oh, they all sound very Boulder. For those who've never been to Boulder, these are all probably things that have actually happened. Um, I know the cruiser ride well. I have partaken in many a cruiser ride. Uh, it did start to get out of control because it... It was, it was started as, you know, a bunch of cruiser riders in costumes and boom boxes and tricked out bikes would meet at a pub or bar. They'd slam a few. They'd go ride to a park. You know, they'd slam a few beers at the park. They'd usually finish at another uh, 
pub at the end of the night. Um, however, with the, the max capacity and the masses, um, it kind of became a thing for a lot of underage drinking. Um, yeah. You know, and, and, and I, shame to say, kind of ashamed. I, I took part before I was of 21 too. So it was, it was I, a rite I, of I passage. I kind of felt, um, yeah, I kind of, when I found out about the Boulder Cruiser ride, I kind of felt, Pete, that you would have at some point kind of been there, you know, <laughs> just kind of felt. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, so, done that. Um, so, you know, I so was it Giant Boulder. Dave? Mm, oh, where, yeah, when did you leave? I left Boulder in 2011. Uh, oh, okay, and moved out to Northern California. So I, I mean, I spent all my, you know, my early years of my twenty, early twenties in there, and turned World Tour while I was still Boulder based. Um, I. What? 45. I don't know if bears live to 45, although I do have a good story of treeing a black bear that we can hit after this um, in downtown Yeah, let's, let's go straight into that oh. afterwards. Yeah. So, But uh, I would guess I do remember a news story about a, what was D, a deer that got shot by a cop? So basically, A is Giant Dave, the black bear who just died at 45. Big boy, a local elk. Who was shot by a Boulder police officer? I'm going to go. Then with that. Ken the Black, Le- yeah. So that or Ken the Black Leopard hit by an ambulance on Maple Avenue of all places, and then Ellsworthy, the one-legged chipmunk, who just passed away in his sleep. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to go with you, the deer. Did you say you're going to you're going to go with the uh, with the elk? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That is correct. That is <laughs> correct. The other ones are figments of my imagination, but using real animals. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, one, mate. honestly, it could you would any of those would actually fit in Boulder. So your imagination is spot on. Yeah, thanks for it. Well, um, you've actually scored a grand total and we'll get our live studio audience um, to give you a round of applause. You've scored. They got one wrong because of your fast start, your amazing knowledge on question number one. Four out of four. Ah, thank you. No worries. No worries at all, Pete. Good, good, good stuff, mate. Well, uh, uh, from what I'd like to hear now, uh, before I move on to actually a slightly kind of more serious question, but I, I'm, I'm fascinated to hear your bear in the tree story. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, Alex Howes is not going to be happy to hear this one. Um, okay. <laughs> Alex Howes is one of my longtime childhood friends. Uh, his birthday is, he's a New Year's baby. Um, and conveniently, one year in Boulder. Uh, you know, we're celebrating New Year's and his birthday at the same time. Um, we are having a, a good time, uh, as you do. And yep. we decide to walk the uh, six or seven blocks to downtown to start go bar hopping. Um, and as we're walking down town, you know, we're probably it's it's well into the night at this point. Uh, we kind of hear this like rumbling and rustling. Um, and and a buddy of mine goes, Oh guys! Oh my God! Oh my God! It's a bear! It's a bear! You know, and it's in this alleyway behind some houses, and we right. all kind of like we're kind of curious, and you know, we kind of peek around, and this bear like you know pops out of a garbage can. He was rummaging for some scraps. Um, little black bear, and and it wasn't that it was a juvenile. You know, it wasn't a big one. Um, uh, and he kind of retreats a little bit, you know, which drunkenly ups our confidence. And you know, we're a pack of like ten deep, so we uh we kind of cautiously like go forward to get a better look and he kind of like retreats and runs up a tree um and drunkenly uh we get to within probably a good you know 10 meters of the thing you know up in the tree and we're trying to take pictures of it and 
And I just, I remember this very vivid moment. It's me and Howes and a few others are laughing. And I kind of have this very vivid moment and I look over and there's this very, very drunk girl in Ugg boots. And I kind of go, <laughs> I can run faster. That, I, can, I can run faster than her. So I'm okay. <laughs> right. Okay. Which is the worst. I, but you know, if you're ever in a bear situation, just make sure you're not the slowest person in the group and you'll be okay. <laughs> so, cool. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but we got some pictures of a bear and then we moseyed, we moseyed on, but uh, yeah, they're, they're part of the uh, urban wildlife, I guess. Blimey. Yeah, I, I never got to see it when I was in uh, Boulder. Uh, I never got to see a bear, just lots of signs and warnings about them. But I know they kind of, uh, they are regularly kind of in people's back gardens, uh, like in the, in the trash cans and stuff, yeah. aren't they? Sometimes Even more so up here in houses. Tahoe, actually. Yeah, it's uh, being yeah. bear aware when you are a homeowner up here. is It's a thing. So. Bear aware. I like that. Uh, yeah. We might use that hashtag uh, when we when we promote this podcast, if you don't mind. Uh, be bear <laughs> aware. Um, and, and a serious question now, Pete. Um, and I wanted to mention it because of kind of, of of kind of where you were at that particular time physically and mentally, and then where you are now, like clearly having the time of your life. And it, do you know what? It's it's really lovely to see, especially with that that big transition. But I have to take you back to uh, as painful as it was the 2015 to the Basque Country when you had mm-hmm. that awful crash with that metal signpost. I mean, which yep. was a catastrophic injury. It was well documented, um, but it looked like you know your career w- was over. Um, but when you look back. When I look back at the kind of timeline, you were quite remarkably, you know, racing relatively quickly, you know, all things considered. But but it was for a time, you know, um, you know, an awful, awful injury. I just wondered how through that that kind of time you, you mentally prepared yourself or you mentally kind of coped and actually did amazingly come out the other side. How do what was your kind of kind of focus? Um, yeah, you, you know, for for those of your listeners who don't know, I hit a, a metal bollard in the tour of the Basque country, um, and shattered my kneecap, my tibia, uh, five ribs, LCL. Um, and a, a lot of people wrote me and my career off. Um, and, uh, a lot of people were kind of like, well, it's a question of whether or not you'll walk normally again. I don't think bike riding was part of the discussion, um, at, yeah. at early on. Um, and it was yeah. just, you know, like we got to see how it goes. So, I, at the time I was on BMC, um, and they had a very good medical team and, um, it was, I, I kind of just had this realization that even if I can't be a pro cyclist anymore, like, you know, I was still under 30 at the time. I want to say I was 28 or something, 26. Um, and I wanted a working leg for the rest of my life. And I had all these medical yeah. tools at my disposal. BMC was still paying me my, my contractual salary. Um, so yeah. I decided, you know, I am a pro athlete, except now my training and my job is to get a working leg again. Uh, so maybe I can race my bike. Sure. Like I was, my back was against the wall. Yeah. I was on a contract year. Um, I wanted to continue in the world tour. That was still my dream. Um, so I just poured everything, my heart and soul into, into rehab. And it was very much kind of like a, a caged animal type of effort. I feel more than, yeah, right. um, introspective. Um, that's kind of how I, I, uh, I treated it. Um, and I luckily, you know, made a comeback that season and I got a, a lifeline contact from contract from Trek, um, and spent a great yeah. four more years there. Um, 
and still riding a bike. Can't do can't do some other higher impact sports to this day. Um, knee replacements in my in my future, but um, you can still race a bike. You know, your feet are locked into those pedals, so it's pretty much uh, up and down. No crazy dynamic movements. So the the one thing that injured me is like the one sport I can do. Yeah, that's, that's similar. My I raced at a kind of lower level back in my career, just continental level in the UK. And my last event was at 41, a small race called Paris Trois. And I hit a lamppost at 60 oh hour and fractured my, fractured my tibia. Um, oh. And so, but I can, I can now ride, but I can't run or kind yep. of walk super long distances. And yep. I wanted to kind of do a bit of marathon running just to keep fit. But yeah, it's weird that kind of strangely, the only sport that I can still do and actually still at a relatively, I'm a bit older. I can still push myself, and, and oh, yeah. so it's kind of strange that, but because it's a, it is one of those sports that um, your you weight supported, and but yeah, impact sports are kind of off the table. But I can still enjoy riding, which is oh god, it's so important. Oh yeah, no, I'm I'm sorry to hear that, and yeah, I bet we could compare no, no. notes on on rehab for a, yeah. a many few beers. Um, but yeah, that's it's cycling is you know it's a re, a lot of people find the bike through through rehab and doctor's notes, so you know it's. It is generally good on the body, except when you're racing on unmanicured courses at high speed in, in glorified underwear, and then it becomes a little dangerous. But um, yeah, the actual act of bike riding is very, very nice. Um, and and boy, I, I do love it. Um, and I was not ready for my time as a, a pro bike racer to be done, although it did fundamentally change my mindset in the long run. And I feel like this is a big part of why I'm in gravel now. Yeah. I mean, to, moving kind of back back onto kind of gravel. Um, I know you 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 uh, touched on the fact that you have like a Fondo event, but what mm. if? Uh, and I do ask I do ask pretty much. It's kind of a new question that I've been asking people over the last few weeks. And um, if there was an unlimited budget, a sponsor came up to you uh, and said, "Hey, Pete, um, we want you to have your own single day race um, anywhere in the world." Um, and yeah, just, just go and design it and get back to us. And you know, what would it look like? Where would it be? I'd imagine it would be on gravel, but mm-hmm. um, kind of where in the world would you want the Peter, Peter Stettner GP to be? Well, um, you know, where where my event takes place is pretty great at the moment. It's on the uh, the uh, lower slopes of the uh, Tahoe Mount, the east shore of Tahoe in Carson City, Nevada. Kind of this high alpine desert um there's a lot of cool stuff out there you know packs of wild mustangs and all that so that kind of right that's it's a great experience um i would budgets always it's a tough thing you know there's um there's permissions to deal with uh you know we pass through a lot of tribal land out here which is a very big part of american culture um and we always got to make sure that we are doing right by the communities we impact um yeah and and i feel like i would actually use the budget less in terms of the race course because gravel is kind of it's about having an adventure that's like it just you know there's a little bit of survival element there you want to kind of be put on the back foot but just have enough help to um achieve something that you wouldn't do on your own um the the the, the hardship is part of gravel for sure um so i would spend a majority of the money on the festival you know i want a killer band i want a ton yeah, of food trucks. I, like it. I want a beer pavilion, you know, that kind of stuff. Like that's where I would put all the money into. Um, as far as course, um, you know, I would, 
I would venture a little further from where my event does take place. And we would start to get into like the playas of Nevada where, you know, they have like the, the burning man festival and stuff like just that yep. endless know, yep. miles long flat, uh, uh, lake beds. Um, that would be super cool, but you would obviously have to like actual set up like makeshift oasis because like, I mean, you run out of water, you are in, you're in a bad way. You, <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, you know, it's, it's just about the experience. There's no rules in gravel at the moment. So, um, I would keep doing a little bit of what we've started. For example, this year at my pay dirt event, um, we have a mechanical bull because this is kind of, you know, Western cowboy style country. Um, so we've got a mechanical bull that is being sponsored by Wahoo and the professional bull riders union, the actual pros who right. buck Bronx. Um, and yep. that's the time bonuses. There's no like finish line time sprint. Like if you come to the line together, like there's a mechanical bull at the expo and however many seconds Just... you stay on it, that's your time bonus. <laughs> So that's brilliant. <laughs> so like, like we're it. we're just doing cool cool stuff like that. Um and I just wanted to keep doing more of that. Just just make it a great yeah. day with the bike being the central focus but um everything else around the periphery of that. Yeah. What what a wonderful way to I mean I know you are pressed for time. You've you've got to head off mate and it's been a a really really lovely conversation. I think I've only spoken to you once or twice at the end of a couple of Walter stages a couple mm. of years back when I was um but it's really nice to have a kind of deeper conversation with you and uh You've, um, I, I think anybody who's listening, who's kind of thinking of kind of dipping their toe into gravel riding, kind of, I would imagine that they're kind of just going to go and do it. Um, and I would love to do an event at some point in the future, a significant, you know, event and probably get my head kicked in, but have a, mm. have a blast doing it, which is what it's all about, mate. But, uh, but Pete, thank you very, very much indeed for joining us uh, on the podcast, mate. Thank you. Um, you know, let me know if you can make it to the, uh, the States for a big gravel event. I think you are mind will be expanded and if you give me a heads up i will make sure to bring some real american ipas then i'll uh i'll, I'll change your mindset on that i that's that's a promise I'm, I'm looking forward to that challenge mate it sounds it sounds wonderful well thanks very much indeed Pete, and have a and all the best at the weekend all right appreciate it thanks for the chat well, if that hasn't whetted your appetite for gravel and beer, I'm not sure what will. Thanks for your time, Pete. A really passionate chap. I think you'll agree. And also congratulations to him on his victory at the Tusher Crusher. And I really hope to get off-road with Pete in the near future. Thanks to Perry at Gwyneth for the podcast theme tune. And thanks to you for listening. Don't forget to like, subscribe and rate the pod. And why not recommend it to a small black bear if you happen to see one up a tree. Finally, a massive thanks again to Pete for joining us on the podcast today. Check out his website, letsprivateer.com. That sounds a bit rude to me, so please make sure you type the URL properly if you'd like to find out more about his gravel riding adventures. Cheers all, stay safe, and goodbye. Hat! <laughs>